Hello, my rebels. I saw the funniest thing uh, today. A company that takes a $35 million a year bailout from Justin Trudeau is doing a series of articles on the beauties of the free market and capitalism. It's almost like Bombardier or some other crooked companies giving an ethics class. It's just too much. I'm talking, of course, about the National Post, the largest recipient of, of Trudeau's media bailout. Oh, the irony. Holy moly. That's today's show. Let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus, though. You can see the video version of it. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get my show plus three others. And uh, besides just getting the video version, you also support Rebel News. We rely on that eight bucks a month to keep us independent. We will never take a government bailout like the National Post does. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, the National Post announces a capitalist manifesto brought to you with a $35 million government grant. It's December 15th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Gee, yesterday I criticized my former friend David Frum. Today I'm criticizing my former employer, the National Post. I don't think I spend a lot of time gossiping about things, and it's not personal. I, I think these are genuinely public interest stories. I think it's just that I've been around so long, and Canada is a small enough place that I've had interactions with some of these newsmakers. Um, in the case of the National Post, I was on their editorial board for about two years right after they started, and for several more years, I wrote op-ed columns for them, too. I've had a chance to get to know their founder, Conrad Black, and some of their best columnists. I enjoyed my time there. I have no grievance or grudge relating to those years. It was a great time to be in the newspaper business, sort of like it would have been a great time to live in the world's most important and populous and wealthy and Christian city in the world, Constantinople, in March of 1453, of course, the city was sacked by the Turks two months later. That's what working in newspapers was like back in 1999 or so. You could see this thing coming over the horizon called the internet, but you didn't really know what it was going to do to you yet. That's what it was like back then. But yeah, different media have coped with the internet in different ways. The New York Times and the Washington Post were bought by billionaires as collectibles. Carlos Slim, Mexico's richest man, bought the New York Times, which is sort of odd. It gives him a powerful political seat at the table, especially in matters of foreign affairs and Mexico-America relations. That's why Jeff Bezos, one of America's richest men, the owner of Amazon, that's why he bought the Washington Post. He wants politicians in America to be scared of him, not the other way around. The Globe and Mail has always been controlled by Canada's richest family, the Thompsons. Don't think for a second this is done selflessly. Once upon a time, it was done in part for riches. Owning a newspaper could be quite profitable back in the pre-internet era, but now that every newspaper is losing money, the reason to own one is for power and prestige, not to make money. It's sort of pitiful 
but no one wants to buy many other Canadian media outlets like Canada's biggest magazine called McLean's. I, I think I told you the lawyer for McLean's magazine told me a few months ago that the entire company has shrunk down. Now it just has 14 employees. How the mighty have fallen. That used to be Canada's biggest and most important news magazine. It used to be published every week. It was very current. Now it's a monthly that no one cares about. It used to have a million readers a week. I just checked their advertising rate card today, and they claim they still print 118,000 copies. They don't disclose how many of those are given away for free. I mean, seriously, would you subscribe to it? 118,000 copies, that's it, in a country of nearly 40 million souls. I guess a lot of them just go to dentist offices just to gather dust. So unlike the Washington Post or the New York Times, um, McLean's doesn't have any prestige doesn't have any political power left. So what billionaire would buy it as a collectible, as a bauble, as a curiosity? Well, no billionaire would, but a millionaire rents it. McLean's Magazine and St. Joseph's Media, the company that bought McLean's at fire sale prices from its former owner, they found themselves a benefactor in Justin Trudeau. If no one else will buy McLean's out of pity or as a collectible, well, Trudeau will in the form of the perpetual media bailout. He's a renter, not a buyer. Trudeau is now the single largest benefactor to McLean's, more than any other advertiser. So whereas Jeff Bezos uses his financial stake in the Washington Post to influence the White House and influence Congress, Justin Trudeau uses his financial stake in McLean's to influence voters and the media. Two sides of the same corrupt coin. Except that at least Bezos uses his own money. Trudeau uses our money to give himself a dollar store version of Pravda. But the genius of Trudeau's plan is that McLean still pretends to be independent. They're not wholly owned by Trudeau like Pravda was owned by the Kremlin. So Trudeau actually gets more bang for the buck. He has corrupted the press, but he still gets to free ride off their historical reputations as independent journalists. You might remember I did a story a couple months ago about the 1,500 media companies that divided up a special $61 million pre-election payout from Trudeau just weeks before the last election, and they all kept it a secret. I didn't know 1,500 people could keep a secret. I didn't know 15 people could keep a secret. <laughs> Two people can barely keep a secret, but I guess there's honor amongst thieves. None of them wanted the world to know they were all on the take. Anyways. All this brings me to the case of Post Media, the largest newspaper company in Canada, the largest recipient of Trudeau's newspaper bailout. Only the CBC gets more, and they're wholly owned by the government, so that's, I guess, their explanation. Post Media is so weird. They're not even Canadian. Do you know that? They're controlled by Chatham Asset Management, a New Jersey hedge fund. Did you know that? So these New Jersey boys are skimming all the money out of Post Media. They couldn't care less about editorial quality. I've just got to read this to you. This is a quote from Chatham's main man in Toronto, Paul Godfrey, who I rather like, by the way. He chairs Post Media, and he gave this interview to Toronto Life. He was asked about Post Media's rapid decline editorially, and if he is actually proud of what they publish. Here's the exchange. You're in the middle of another round of job cuts. At what point are you diminishing the print product so much 
that you're hastening its decline. It hasn't happened yet. Are our papers as good as they used to be? No, but they haven't become unacceptable. They haven't become unacceptable. That's quite a thing to say. That's quite a backhanded compliment. Honey, how, how do I look today? Uh, honey, does this make me look fat? How did I do, I do my big presentation today? Um, you're not as good as you used to be, but you haven't yet become unacceptable. That is so classic. You got to give Paul Godfrey full marks for a sense of humor. That reminds me, I got to just show you this goofy, you know, remember that comedy? Remember that show called Dumb and Dumber? It reminds me of this scene. I want to ask you a question straight out, flat out. I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. We really don't... Hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Hey, you're not yet unacceptable. So there's a chance. I say all this because one of the reasons the National Post is in decline is because it has become a newspaper more focused on pleasing the powers that be and applying for government grants rather than doing great journalism in the interests of its viewers, readers. It's Trudeau's mistress now, and it sort of shows. They're grantrepreneurs, not entrepreneurs. Different mindset. So I saw this today. It's a tweet from National Post. Follow our new series that raises a toast to the miraculous free market. Starts December 18th in the National Post or read it online now. A toast to the miraculous free market. Except what do they know about that? Because instead of living by the free market, they live on government handouts. How do they write that with a straight face? Look at that language. The capitalist manifesto. That sounds so butch, so revolutionary. Celebrate capitalism, except they celebrate socialism or maybe crony capitalism or whatever it is when you rely on the state to fund you. And then you claim to give good, honest critiques of that same politician. Yeah. Look, newspapers have to get their money from somewhere. I get it. For a long time, newspapers got a lot of their money from ads, for example, from car dealerships. I remember the Sun chain of newspapers would have dozens of different pages of ads from different car companies. So it was probably true that the Toronto Sun or any other Sun, Calgary Sun, Amazon, probably weren't too critical of car companies, big advertisers. I remember when I was working at the National Post 20 years ago, they took a run at one of the airlines. I forget if it was Air Canada or Canadian. I don't know if you remember that airline back in the day. I forget which one. And um, I was told that they got a phone call from that airline saying, if you keep bashing us, don't expect those glorious full-page ads. So you're always in some sort of competing pressure when you have advertisers. Here at Rebel News, 
we don't really have ads. We make our money from crowdfunding. The average size of a donation is just over $50. We simply don't have any advertisers like that who could or would call us up to make an editorial demand like that. And even if they did, they probably know that we would fire them before they could fire us. We'd probably do a story about it. So, But the Post really has just one benefactor now who counts, Justin Trudeau. I mean, let me make a confession and look into your heart and you tell me what you think. If someone truly, truly, really, no make-believe actually offered me $35 million a year, and I mean if it really happened, not just a thought experiment, it would be very hard for me to say, no, I won't take so much money that for the rest of my life and the rest of my children's lives and their children's lives, they'll be set forever. No, I won't cash that check. I'll continue the hard scrabble effort of earning our revenue $50 at a time. Look, I won't lie to you. If such a bizarre alternative universal you know, universe event happened, I would be morally challenged. It would test my mettle. But I hope, I hope that if I took a $35 million a year bribe that everyone saw as we see post me, I hope that if I were to do that, with whatever remaining integrity I had or whatever remaining shame I had, I hope that I wouldn't rub it in my viewer's face about being a super capitalist who believes in the glory of the free market. Now, I did read the article. I clicked the link. And, um, you know, it's good enough. I encourage you to read it. It wasn't bad. It was the global historical case for capitalism, how it raised everyone up not just the richest. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? I mean, the poor person today in, say, New York City lives a life that, I don't know, in many ways could be comparable to how J.D. Rockefeller lived 150 years ago. The life expectancy of a poor person today in, say, New York, their life expectancy, the health care they get, the food they eat, both its nutritiousness, its cheapness, its variety, the entertainment you get. The travel you can do cheaply, that's capitalism that lifted not just the rich up, but the poor up. The poor, the hungry, the working classes, they have been the chief beneficiaries of capitalism, not just in America and Canada, but especially in the poorest parts of the world. Think of India. Think of China. It's also why so many people who are working class vote conservative. I don't necessarily mean the party of that name, but just they think conservatively because they have a stake in things now. They have a house that they own, perhaps, maybe a truck and a boat, too. They have what, in the not-so-distant past, only the rich had. I think the case for capitalism really does need to be made. I'm just not sure if the National Post is in a position to do it. Right now, capitalism has a bad name, in part because the most conspicuous capitalists are, in many ways, the most evil. Disney Corporation and the NBA. And all those millionaire basketball players, they suck up to China. And they stay silent about human rights abuses in China. The richest companies of 2021, the big pharmaceutical companies, but you, you know they didn't make their billions through free enterprise. They had governments buy huge tranches of not yet fully tested drugs for them, give them a very uncapitalistic waiver on liability. You cannot sue them. I mean, if... If anyone else made a product that kills people, you sue the company. Think of tobacco companies. But Pfizer and Moderna and the rest of them, they have the best of all worlds. No liability for any injuries or deaths they cause. 
plus government contracts, unlimited, plus the worst of it, government is forcing citizens to buy and inject their stuff. Sorry, that is not capitalism. That's something else. I don't know, fascism, I think. Jeff Bezos, he got rich from his own smarts, but he got double rich because governments banned his mom and pop shop competitors in your neighborhoods this past year or two. You had to go with Amazon. The local store down the street was forced closed. No wonder young people are turned off by capitalism. They've never actually seen it, except in the corrupt version that they see outside the, on their TVs. Sure, I'm glad the National Post is dressing up as a capitalist for one day a year as if they actually live the freedom lifestyle. It's like Halloween for them. They get to wear a costume and forget about their reality as corporate welfare bums. Sure, <laughs> good for them. And I guess it's not like any real young people in college or high school are reading the National Post and relying on the National Post to rebut the Bernie Sanders or Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez way of thinking. So really, no harm done, except to the remaining reputation of what was once a great newspaper run by a great newspaper man. Hmm. Now it's just like Aaron O'Toole, controlled opposition one millimeter more conservative than the liberals. Sorry. That's not enough to pretend that you're capitalist or conservative anymore, especially not when you line up for your gift from Trudeau's hand. Stay with us. So today we are going to be introducing to the public and, and we have legislators who are going to help us with this, um, a new piece of legislation for the upcoming legislative session called Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act, the Stop Woke Act. And it's something that... And this will do a number of things that are very important. One, it will put into statute uh, the Department of Education's prohibition on CRT in K through 12 schools. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other. Well, that is a press conference earlier today by Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. I think he's the best governor in America. Not only does he do a bang up job on lockdowns and the pandemic, and he's brought a science-based approach, not a fear-based approach. He's doing very well in the polls because of it. His economy is booming because he hasn't lost it down. But he's rather adept at taking on issues that, well, other people talk about, but no one really does anything about. One example is what's called critical race theory. You may not understand what the word critical race theory means. Critical theory is applying Marxism to other fields besides labor and capitalism. I mean, and you have the class system, the owners versus the workers. Critical theory applies that same thinking to gender. For example, you have men who oppress women. Apply that to race, and you have white people who oppress black people. It's Marxism transposed onto other fault lines in society. In other words, it stokes racial division the same way Marxism stokes economic division between workers and managers, for example. Now, you wouldn't think that critical race theory is a big deal in Canada. We did not have slavery of any substance. Uh, we abolished slavery, slavery many decades before the United States did. We were part of the British Empire that went to war 
for 50 years against slave trading ships. The Royal Navy, of which Canada was a part, fought against slavery. We didn't have the same Jim Crow laws. The Klan was never a major fact in Canada. In fact, we were the destination of the Underground Railroad. So I was startled to learn that critical race theory, in fact, is being imported into Canada, sort of treating us like a branch plant, a copycat of what may be a real issue in the United States, but has no roots here. Well, it's finding roots. And joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Teresa Pierre, the president of Parents as First Educators of Parents' Rights Groups, based here in Ontario. Dr. Pierre, pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, Ezra. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, I have always thought of critical race theory as an inherently American thing because it's part of the black experience um, merged with Marxism. And I get it. I may disagree with it, but I can see how there are grievances and there is some healing that needs to be done. I, I'm not going to weigh in. I'm not an American, but I get it, even if I disagree with it. Canada, it feels like they're grafting on someone else's solution to a problem that we don't have. Um, I mean, I think that racism is a problem throughout the world and in every society. Um, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you point to it being transplanted from Canada to the States. Um, of course, there are uh, issues of racism that are present in our society. Um, but this is um, the what they're advocating is really to kind of turn it into our, our race, a divide, like race divide, like to deepen it further. And um, this is, uh, you know, one, one of our criticisms of the project is, is you, you know, why are you going to try to heal something um, with more division? Why are you going to, um, you know, try to um, make things better by stoking division between uh, children of different races. Well, let's uh, start uh, there. What exactly is being taught in Canada? I mean, I, I've actually learned more about American critical race theory because there's been a real political battle. And I think it was one of the reasons why the Republicans had a surprise win in the gubernatorial race in the state of Virginia. The, the Republicans were 10 points behind just a year ago in the presidential election, and they won it largely on this issue. So I, I feel like I know what's going on in the States. Can you give us a bit of an inventory or a status report? What is the state of these courses, these classes, this ideology in Canada? Can you give us some specific examples? Um, yes, uh, we have um, we have it being rolled out in classrooms, and we've seen that um, through the, the blog of Samuel Say. He... Um, uh, reported on the teaching of it in the Peel District in Ontario. And I'm having, you know, trustees from across the country saying they're getting in-services on this. And, you know, they um, they want a parent's help to try to push back against the school boards that are doing that. Okay, you mentioned Peel District. That's a that's a, a area outside the Toronto proper. Um Right. And you, you mentioned you're getting calls across the country. What is an in-service? You said use that word. I'm not a I'm not a teacher. I don't know what that word means. What is when you say it's coming in as an in-service, what does that mean? Um, what it means is that um, in the case of trustees, they're 
they're bringing in speakers um, often at quite an expense to inculcate these teachings of uh, critical race theory, um, lay it out so the trustees can understand how oppressive they are um, being and um, to try to get them to change policies and to adjust things in the schools um, based on that theory. Uh, Dr. Pierre, pleasure to meet you today. Thanks very much for your time. Okay, thank you very much. There you have it, Dr. Theresa Pierre, head of parents as first educators. Stay with us more ahead. Well, listen, I appreciated uh, our last guest spending some time with us. I just didn't feel like I got the answers I need, but we will continue on that story. If critical race theory is being taught in our schools, I'd like to learn how and in what ways. I'd like to hear examples of it. I know those examples are out there, and I'm sorry we just didn't get them today. I hope my questions were not too pressing or too persistent, but I just want to know the facts. Anyways, here's some reader feedback, viewer feedback. Chainsaw2100, not sure if that's the name your mama gave you, says, I quit my security job because I refuse to ask for vaccine cards. It's just wrong. Well, I salute you, and I say you're very much a small minority. I don't know if you remember when I was talking to Alexa Lavoie about uh, Jordan Peterson's comment. The troubling reality is that most people plunked into Nazi Germany in the 30s would have just gone along with it. Every other force in society, every person in the media, every institution, the laws, you would go. It's very hard to swim against the current. Very hard. Anthony Richards says, started following Rebel more with COVID nonsense and Alexis doing a great job showing us what happens in Quebec. Perhaps the worst province in Canada, measure-wise. Alexa is great. She's always a source of interesting stories. She's got quite a personality herself. We're so very proud of her. That's why she won the Ambassador Award for reaching out to people that Rebel hasn't really spoken to before. Perseus09 says, I've shared this story before, and I wish to share it again. Here again, during an interview not that long ago, a Holocaust survivor was asked, if you knew then what you know today, how would you have dealt with the Nazis during the war? The man answered this way, if we only met them at the door with kitchen knives and fire pokers, the Holocaust would never have happened. History teaches us many lessons, and this is one of them. By doing nothing, you are granting these tyrants permission to destroy innocent lives, including your own. How far are you willing to go to stop this tyranny? What has to happen before you take action, even if it means doing the unthinkable? But when would they have had fire pokers and knives? At what stage in the game? When it was the brown shirts and the paramilitaries running around the streets? Or when it was the police authorized by laws passed by the Reichstag? At what point? Because there were some illegal riots. Kristallnacht was illegal torching in the synagogues and Jewish businesses, for example. But as I mentioned the other day, the Nuremberg laws that created racial segregation, fired Jews from jobs, for example, that was a lawful law passed lawfully. It was a moral evil law, but it was passed. So who would you take the knives up against? The police? The politicians? That's the trouble when the entire society goes off the rails. How do you fight back? Do you try and fight back from within the society? 
that's one of the things we grapple with here. I mean, we like to use the law. We like to go to court. We like to represent people. But what happens if the law itself is changed and you have to fight within a law that is innately immoral and tilted against you? I, it's a terrible question because that Holocaust survivor's point is correct. At a certain point, you have to say, I am no longer going to limit myself to acting within the law. I'm going to use a knife and a hot poker, as he said. But what is that point? And will you, in fact, have the opprobrium of 99% of people who say, now you're the violent one. Now you're the cause of this ruckus. I do not believe we are as far down the road as that Holocaust survivor says. We are not yet there. The Holocaust didn't happen overnight, though. And Hitler took power in 33. Second World War didn't start till September of 39. The Holocaust itself didn't really get started till 1940. And the worst of it was 43, 44 even. So it took a decade to get there. I put it to you that we are more than a day into that decade, more than a week, more than a month. I'm not saying we're a year down that in terms of how far they went, but we have had lawmaking by decree. We have had courts rubber stamping these decrees. We have the demonization of minorities. We have forced internment even just for a few weeks. How far down that decade long journey that Nazi Germany made, how far down that road have we gone? I don't know, it's a terrible question. I, um, I hope we don't go any further. I don't propose the pokers and the knives strategy, but I understand the sentiment uh, because look at what happened when no one pushed back until the end. That's our show for today. Sorry to end on such a sad and, and fatalistic note. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with Sheila Gunn-Reed's report on Justin Trudeau's Choice of in-flight movies. You'll get a chuckle out of that. All right. See you tomorrow. Besides being able to hold the government accountable on behalf of the people, I love access to information investigations because I like knowing I was definitely right to think that government bureaucrats are so often a bunch of weirdo control freaks using their overinflated salaries to focus on the most bizarre things that literally nobody cares about. Sheila Gunn-Reed for Rebel News, and I love a good I told you so as much as the next girl. And when I say that Justin Trudeau and the people around him are a bunch of paternalistic weirdos and fake feminists, well, it's kind of nice to be able to show you that fact in a government document. We're currently going through an enormous document package on the use of the government Challenger jet fleet. It's an ongoing project that we do year after year, wherein we show you the high-flying ways of Justin Trudeau and his senior cabinet ministers and VIPs, and their so often liquor-soaked bashes up in the sky where they treat the executive fleet of jets like a limo on a bachelorette party night. Today, however, I'm not telling you about the thousands upon thousands of your dollars that Justin Trudeau and his friends spend on booze in the sky, nor the hundreds of thousands of dollars they spend on food, but rather how the in-flight movies are causing controversy. At least two of them were deemed not suitable for our female governor general at the time, Julie Payette. 
Now, for some reason, the Department of National Defense sent us the list of movies available to the prime minister and his VIP friends to watch when they're on the government challengers. The DND didn't even send us the whole list. They just sent us the B and C titles. And I don't know why they did this. I don't know if they're sending me this stuff to waste my time because I have to read it. But you know what? I did read the list. And frankly, it's kind of heavy with Leonardo DiCaprio content. So read into that what you will. The beach is on the list and Blood Diamond's on there too. Anyway, I thought it was sort of curious. Something piqued my interest. There are two movies on the list whose titles I can't know now because they were deemed inappropriate. As in, the movies were listed as something Justin Trudeau could watch, but they were deemed inappropriate for the Governor General Julie Payette to watch when she was on the flight. Good gracious, what are those titles? What did those movies have in them? And why do these government bureaucrats think they need to go about the business of pre-censoring movies for the lady governor general? I'm pretty sure she can make her own mind up about what she wants to watch on a flight. Think whatever you want about Julie Payette, and I certainly do. But the Queen's representative in Canada at the time is an autonomous adult woman who doesn't need a feminist government and their bureaucratic enablers telling her what she can't cast her pretty little eyes upon, that it might angry up her blood. Also, again, I'm just dying to know what those movies were and specifically what genre they fell under and what rating were they given. R, X, triple X. Feminism for Justin Trudeau is when you fire prickly women you can't control and wherein you have bureaucrats tell other women what they can't watch on a flight. It is so important that we all understand uh, that it's not only uh, that men can be feminists, it's that men should be feminists as well. And I am proud of that. Being a feminist for me means recognizing that men and women should be, can be, must be equal. And secondly, that we still have an awful lot of work to do. He for She is a UN movement that I hope all of you go up and sign up for of men standing up for women, men shutting down some of those negative conversations that we get in locker rooms, uh, in bro culture. We need to know that we are better than that. Still, going through this document package is an enormous task. This is the same document package where we discovered that a challenger had indeed gone to Barbados last Christmas, but it was for a military purpose, which is weird because the bureaucrats should have just told everybody and the conspiracy theories would not have run rampant last Christmas. And there's so much more to get through. Lots of little tidbits like this one here. But doing these sorts of investigations, so time consuming and it is expensive. We have somebody who helps us read through these research documents, but the truth is we have to physically lay eyes on every single page. Filing takes time and it takes money. And then appealing takes time and money when they deny the initial filing. This one alone has taken a year. And I'm just now getting through the documents. If you'd like to support this sort of government accountability journalism that really nobody else is doing, we have a very special fund where you can donate. It's at rebelinvestigates.com. We don't get big bucks like the CBC to do stories nobody watches. We rely on the support of viewers like you at home to ask questions nobody else will. And thanks again to everybody who donates to make this sort of work possible. For Rebel News, I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed. Are you like me? Are you just dying? 
to know what movies Justin Trudeau was watching that were deemed inappropriate for the lady governor general, Julie Payette. If you'd like to help me find out that information, please donate at rebelinvestigates.com. I'm going to do my best to file for that information. If they block me, I'm going to appeal. I must know the answers to these questions. Again, that's rebelinvestigates.com.